everyone. I'm Bailey. I'm Drew. And I'm Lacey. And, and we're, we're sarcastic, sarcastic, so let's get sinister. Hello again. Welcome back, everybody. Hey. I hope everyone had a good few days. By my calculations, it should be three days. No, three. Um, Tuesday, four. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, like, three days to digest the first Happy Friday. Of the Oakland County Killer case. Um, yeah. Should we just jump right in? Do you want to say anything else? Just think of puppies through this. There's a lot of creaking going on in the corner. Jesus. It's our ghost. It's our sinister ghost. Can I start now? Mm-hmm. Yes, please. Okay. I'm begging you. So, part one, we went over um, the victims, impossible victims. We talked about, like, the task force, and we ended with December 1978 when the task force was shut down and murders, the murders stopped. And the officials reported that the reason that the case had never been solved was it was taken care of. Yeah, which is unsatisfactory. Yeah. Um, What's that sound? So, again, that was 1978, so we're going to cut towards to 2004. Jump forward. Wow. Yeah. Whatever. It's jumped back for us, because we're in whatever year we're in right now. Teeny weeny beeny. Billy I was going to say, we haven't done that in a really long time. So, 2004, we meet pretty, like, we're going to call him our main character and, like, our star of the show because he's awesome. Detective Corey Williams. He was assigned a 15 year old cold case. Um, this was not, this ended up kind of taking him down a trail to the Oakland County child killer case. Okay. Um, but this case he was working was a homicide of an owner of the Detroit cab company, Xavier Giller. In 1989, Giller was gunned down in his own driveway. The killer is proven to be a man named Richard Lawson. When Lawson was arrested, he wanted a deal and claimed that he had firsthand information about the Michigan snow killings. Oh, is that what they were called? Yeah. So to give you background on Lawson... He was born in 1946 in Gaylord, Michigan, to a single mother who left him on a doorstep at the time at a home for boys in downtown Detroit. His father was serving overseas at the time. He was adopted, but was a troubled kid. In his teens, he had been arrested and charged with molestation several times over. At 18, he was arrested in Detroit and charged with indecent liberties with a child, which trigger warning he yeah. uh what that meant was he paid an eight-year-old 10 cents to perform oral sex mm-hmm. uh, yeah this one's gonna get dark guys yeah because the last one was so light and airy you know we needed a change mm. we needed to go back into the abyss we're going too easy so he was charged with indecent liberties with a child also what kind of jail time is that this is where it's gonna get annoying and very Ugh. Very like sad and pissed. Everyone's did I lead off. you? Yeah, he was sentenced to two years probation. That's wrong. Yeah, because he's yep. still out yep. doing stuff. And that was when he was eighteen. So he oh. had plenty of uh, yeah. Um, years to... So cut to two thousand four. Lawson claimed that he would pick up young white male pl- prostitutes about eleven to thirteen years old, claiming he would have sex with them and then try to get information out of them. About the Oakland County child killer case for the police, which Williams, the detective, when he was taking this like statement, he knew this was like total BS. He's yeah. like, we wouldn't have done that. Like, so we wouldn't have asked you to be an informant that way. Lawson claimed that the killers were two adult male pedophiles that used a young boy to lure kids to the car. He described their relationship as one man being the brains behind the crimes, and he was into young boys, while the other was into young girls, and he was the violent one. He believed one was named Ted Orr, said that he worked for Ford Motor Company and moved to Ohio shortly after the killer's killing stopped. Orr had a close friend named Bob Moore, 
Lawson more and more. Hmm? Yeah. Lawson claims Sorry. that they had shown him a photo album once belonging to Moore and saw a naked photo of Tim King, who was the last victim. Lawson would nail certain facts that were not widely known. For instance, that Jill was not molested because she was menstruating. Um, um, and that Christine had not started her period yet. Lawson told them how pedophiles at the time in Cast Corridor, which was like a seedy part of downtown Detroit, worked as a team. One would coax kids while the other was a lookout, and a third would grab them and cover their screams. Lawson passed away in prison in 2012. That's but a shame. With Lawson's tip, Ted Orr, for that man was looked more into. It determined to be an alias, and Lawson said that he believed Ted's last name began began with like a L-A-M, but he couldn't give us the rest of his name. Hmm. Williams looked through old tips for Ted or Theodore with the last name starting with an L-A-M. In 1977, back when the task force was in action and the tip line was going, there was a tip on a man named Ted Lamborghini. 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 Okay. Lawson actually called that tip in back then. He also called a tip in on a man named Bob Moore. Neither tip was investigated. Bob Moore forced children into sex acts with his camera rolling. He ended up dying in Detroit March 2nd, 1996 at 55 from cardiac arrest. So he was actually like caught. Yeah. He was I wonder if Lawson just knew like other pedophiles in the area. It seemed like they all had a fun little club. They think they had a network. And he was like, I think that they seemed like it was fairly prevalent because you were saying people resorted to that. Yeah. Bob Moore's body wasn't discovered until days after his passing, and it was found that his three dogs had chewed his carcass to bits. So, no, fuck you, bro. So, we're heartbroken. Super sad for him. Um, so this is Lawson. Who looks who looks creepy? Looks like somebody you wouldn't trust your kids with. Um, this is Ted Lamborghini. Um, and then this was Bob Moore. So yeah, creepy facial hair. Fuck him, you doing with him? I know. His he's not. He wasn't. He's tall and his eyes are a little cross-eyed, like my cat. Yeah, which cat? Sebastian. So Ted uh, Lamborghini is that what we said? Sure. Okay, doesn't matter. He He sucks. Yeah, he (laughs) left Detroit in 1978. His mother was interviewed and revealed that she knew. He, uh, her son was homosexual. It had been the reason he was discharged from the Navy in 63, but she had no idea her son was a pedophile. In August 2005, Ted admitted his involvement in pedophilia in Detroit in the 70s with Lawson, Moore, and others. Um, He denied having anything to do with the murders. He was given a lie detector test and was shown that showed deceit when asked in 1976-77 in Oakland County, did you participate in the in killing any of those kids? Were you present when any of those kids were killed? Did anyone tell you they were killed? Any? Did, they, did anyone tell you they killed any of those kids in Oakland County? And did anyone see kill, did you see anyone kill any of those kids Each in 1976 one? 70, and 77 in Oakland County? Yes. You showed Each deceit for both. Deceit? Yep. Um, his picture, he looks kind of, like, submissive. Mm-hmm. So, I wonder if he was, like, the beta. Um, unfortunately, just with a lie detector test, they couldn't arrest him, but they did keep him under surveillance. Williams, at that point, who's the detective, uh, went to work securing testimony from 16 victims who went on record describing Lamborghini's assaults. Ted admitted to it. Remembering faces, times, locations, and graphic details, he was arrested arrested for uh, raping eight children in December 2006. He was offered witness protection for prison by the FBI for information about the Oakland County child killer case, but he declined and pled guilty to 14 counts, including three life felonies. Did he get murdered immediately in prison? I don't think so. 
I can't remember. Yeah. Did he die? Let me look. I feel like I don't know. coming in with that rap sheet is I not think a it's good better. I like it better when they're not killed immediately, but rather are often Fortune. attacked and killed down the road. Yeah. My favorite I'll version of a pedophile's ending. Oh, I like when they live in fear. Yeah, that, that too. That's true. And made to feel like how they made the victims feel. Yes. Um... In September 2005, they obtained the old evidence from the storage room. Um, they wished to determine DNA on any of the kids' clothing. At this point, the only known DNA was some hairs found on Christine's shirt and Tim's clothing. What about the sperm? Hold on. I think we have the sperm. I'm not 100% sure. Um, I think it's somewhere in my notes, but we'll go over it eventually. Okay. I know it's in here. They found the slide that had a hair found on Tim's groin area. Amongst the evidence, they also found Jill's bike, Tim's skateboard, Tim's hockey jacket, Mike's fur line coat, and Christine's boots. They were all still in evidence. Okay. Now we're going to jump forward to 2007, July 31st. This is a lot of information, a lot of dates. This is them working the case and starting mm -hmm. it back up. So it's going to be jumping around just a little bit. Yeah. Kathy King, who is Tim's eldest sibling and only sister, mm -hmm. had heard that someone had confessed to the crimes back in 1977 and reported this to Williams. So it's important to know that when William Detective Williams took over the case, he became close with the King family because they were still trying very hard to find what mm -hmm. happened. I go into like what all the other families do and the King families have done since. Yeah. Their kids got taken from them, um, but the Kings were very, like, we need to figure out what's going on. Like, why isn't anything being done? Yeah, I like that he, it seems like he introduced himself to them. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Like, so they know who's in charge now. Yep. And that somebody is working the case yeah. still. Yeah. So, Patrick Coffey, spelled with an E-Y, um, was a longtime friend of the King family. He grew up to be a private polygraph examiner in California. Coffee was actually a childhood playmate of the King boys living across the street, and Tim's abduction and murder sparked his desire to go into the polygraph field. Mm. Um, Coffee was presenting at the American Polygraph Association uh, conference in Las Vegas in July 2006 when a fellow polygraph technician, Larry Wasser, approached him to compliment his presentation. Wasser was an esteemed forensic polygraph examiner. He served for 19 years as vice president for the APA, which is the American Polygraph Association, and was the president of the Michigan Association of Polygraph Examiners. The two got to talking about Coffee coming to Detroit for a presentation, and Wasser discovered Coffee was from there and even lived across from the Kings. Wasser knew the uh, Oakland County child case. And without thinking, said, well, I guess I can tell you now because the attorney is dead and the guy who did it is dead. I tested the guy who killed your neighborhood boy. Holy shit. Yeah. Wasser went on to explain that the subject's attorney hired him to do a test on her client who had been charged with several counts of criminal sexual conduct with a minor. In the pre preliminary part of the examination where the subject is asked controlled and comparison questions, the subject said he couldn't answer no fully to questions relating to the Oakland County child killer case. When asked why, the subject said, I didn't do this one, but I did the boy in Birmingham, which was Tim King. Interesting. So why didn't Wesser, Wesser mm -hmm. say anything? There's no client. He claims there is. Okay. I disagree. He claims that because he was, I think he was hired as a private consult, consult. And that not, like, he couldn't speak out. Yeah, I don't stuff like that. Yeah. Even even like doctors and lawyers and like priests who have like a special rule where they can't. I guess confidentiality to, privileges. Yeah, there's yeah. Still, there, I, oh, it's annoying because like there still needs to be like a hey I can't say anything but you should look into somebody in my circle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. I don't think there should be a situation where I can walk up to somebody and be like, hey, I killed this person or whatever horrendous thing. And they're like, well, legally, I can't tell anybody yeah. about that. Especially the lawyers who are like, or like doctors mm -hmm. who are there 
lawyers are there for the law. Doctors are there to help people. And it's just infuriating when they let shit like this go. Because it's like, if you're there to uphold the law, then what are you doing covering for this person? And if you're there to help people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to, I know, well, I know people have uh, opinions about polygraphs. So, for instance, we're going to see a lot more tests come through this. Mm-hmm. Because I believe I read somewhere that, like, Detroit was the first pioneering the polygraph to make it, like, the standard it Mm. was then. So they relied heavily on it. Yeah. So anyone that they suspected got a test. Yeah. I Um, feel like that's pretty common now, too. Yeah. So we're going to see a lot more test results with that. But we also know now that they're not as reliable as they were. Like, they're not even usually admissible in court anymore, right? Yeah. They're not. I've heard that they're like a hot dog in a trench coat. Useless. Oh, more. oh. I like that a lot. Oh, have you had, not heard? No, really. Any other podcast you haven't heard that? Do you seriously not know? No, that's what that's I, what Elena says. Yeah, I don't. I don't listen to them as all oh, you guys do. Um, that's that's what Elena. Polygraph says. test is like a hot dog in a trench coat. Useless. So back to Wasser okay. and <laughs> coffee. Tell it to your kids when they say excuses. Oh, you... like, excuses are like hot dogs in a trench coat. You better believe this is coming up in my classroom. Good. I'm so excited. So back to coffee and Wasser. So they have this conversation in Vegas. They part ways. Coffee goes to Kathy King because they're old friends. They were neighbors. And then Kathy takes it to Detective Williams. Okay. Detective Williams then starts investigating this. Wasser shut down claiming it was against privilege as a polygraph examiner. I don't know. I didn't look that up. I didn't care to. Um, After some more questioning, Wasser revealed how much they already, or realized how much they actually already knew from the conversation with Coffee and decided to talk because he said this guy is dead. His lawyer's dead. Mm -hmm. His lawyer hired him because he had other prior victims. So you can see how the list can kind of like work its way down. Wasser was concerned about leaks in the media and that the subject's family might file a lawsuit against him. I think he was probably just scared about the lawsuit. Wasser explained, during the pre-polygraph interview, the subject owned up to being polygraphed before, and he had been tested and cleared of the Oakland County child killing case. Okay, so, sorry. Privately licensed lie detector polygraph examiners usually have to sign a confidentiality agreement okay. before they begin the test. Okay. Because they're they also do like stuff for famous people, NDAs. Yeah. Oh, okay. This is from like a polygraph company. So they're they're like this is our rules, but still. Yeah. Um the examiner will only provide a written and or verbal results when instructed to do so by the client. So if the client mm-hmm. was this guy, they're not gonna be like, oh yeah. Yeah. Don't tell people about this. Um, it's crazy. Yeah, I, I yeah, I mean now we know. Like even then, if it's illegal, I know. Wasser surmised that the subject was tested by the Michigan State Police Examiner in Flint, who had less than a stellar track record wow. accuracy. Mm-hmm. He knew it was a good chance that the subject never should have passed the polygraph in the case. Um, Williams was able to find the name of the lawyer through redacted paperwork. Mm. Um, her name was Jane Burgess, and she was an attorney in Detroit who had passed away January 7th, 1997, of a heart attack. That's a shame. Using the lawyer's name and the fact that the subject was dead and the name of the polygraph examiner that most likely would have performed the test, they went through the exam notes of 40 to 50 exams. Oh. Some of those examinations were performed in the late 70s, only two files related to the case. One was a negative result, and there was no indication he had been arrested or charged for any criminal sexual conduct during the relevant time. The second file contained two separate exams requested by the Southfield Police Department. January 1977, police had arrested two subjects on criminal sexual conduct, charges with a 13-year-old boy. During questioning, one said that his partner killed Mark Stibbins. Mm. The first polygraph was Christopher Brian Bush, and the second was Gregory Gregory Woodward Green. Okay. These are the two that I feel like did it. Are the one. 
So going into them, Christopher Brian Bush was born in 1951. He was, actually, let me show you his lovely, beautiful, beautiful face so first. So what was the scenario? The lawyer hired a private polygraph examiner to interview her client? So Bush was getting charged with conduct like they were getting they were both getting charged with um sexual conduct with a 13 year old Mm -hmm. and i think right in the middle of the murders yeah and i think kurt bush's because we're gonna find that bush is from a very wealthy family they hired a lawyer and she i think submitted him for a polygraph to kind of prove or disprove the story okay and then during the pre-exam, I came up like, has he been a polygraph before? He said yes, and mentioned that it was from the Oakland County case. And oh, I see. Yeah, um, which he was questioned about like the killing, then passed that, and then he got charged. So Chris was she had to put her on. Yeah. yeah. Chris was questioned in regards to and looked at for the Oakland County case. Mm-hmm. He cleared that test, so they were like, he's fine, moving on. As time went on, he got charged with criminal conduct with or sexual conduct with a 13-year-old boy. And his lawyer was like, okay, let's get a polygraph on our side as evidence. Most likely, oh. that's when they met Washer. That's when Walter was like, okay, have you ever been polygraphed before? Chris said yes and relates to this. I thought um, the scenario was like, you're lying to me. Mm-hmm. Let's get a polygraph no. just so that I know that you're not. Nope. The lawyer, I I thought the lawyer didn't trust her own client. No. Because you know how they say like, you have to tell me everything. So, so I can that actually I can defend better you. defend yeah. you. And after he told her some things, she was like, I don't believe you. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. It's we're working like backwards. Yeah, it's fine. I just I didn't understand what the scenario was. Yeah, that makes sense. Man. Um, so just to show you guys our lovely men, this was Christopher Bush. Ooh, oh. That's who I was picturing more for. Um, which, if you remember, Bob. one of the witness statements, the husky salt guy, team, husky guy, mm-hmm. shaggy hair. Okay, um, and then. One could say this his hair is Gregory Green. Bushy. That's the same person. Yeah, that he was looks... a composite sketch, too. Who's at the top? That... That's the same guy. He looks like totally different past. with his hair short and stuff. Um, Gregory Green gets in trouble a lot, so he's got a few mug shots. At the top, he kind of looked like um from Shameless. Yeah. The one everybody yep. crushing. Yeah. Um but, Yes. So, Christopher Brian Bush was born in 1951. He was the youngest son and child of Har- uh, Harold Lee and Elise Bush. They lived in Birmingham in an upscale neighborhood from 1970 to 1979. They had two dogs, Tabitha and Sam. Tabitha was a white-haired Welsh terrier, and Sam was Ibizan hound dog, I think. Um, which I don't know that what that dog looks like off the top of my head. Um, what's that? What's that hound that's big and white? Any more information? Afghan hound? Maybe. Yeah. He's from Birmingham. Yeah, that's where the last one was from, right? And the last one was when we was seen talking to a guy in the parking lot. Yes. Okay. Timothy. I can't remember which one was Timothy, which one was Mark. Okay. What kind of car does he drive? We're gonna get there. Sorry. Sorry. Can we calm down, guys? No one. Find the case. Um. Harold was a General Motors executive financial director in Europe and the United States. So high up. Um, Does he travel to Europe? The Yeah. Hold on. <laughs> Can I get through the story? No, I'm solving the case. Um, Chris's brothers, uh, he had three. He had John, who was born in 1940. There was Charles, who was born in 1944, and David, who was born in 1946. And then, again, Chris was born in 1951. By the time Chris was 10, the family had lived in Michigan, New York, New Jersey, and Germany. At 13, he was sent to Switzerland to attend a historic and elite boarding school. He graduated there and then stayed a short while as an instructor. Excuse me? Gesundheit. That was a burp. Gesundheit. 
Okay. Um, in 1917. Not German. That's not tight. I don't like how that's. What was that? That was my demon. That's the ghost. <laughs> that was my bless you demon. In 1970, Chris came back to the states and eventually received a degree in culinary school. Chris was a husky built guy, standing five foot eight inches and weighing about 260. He had dark, stringy, shoulder-length hair and a full beard. He was involved in the Big Brother program. And he was well, from, I bet he loved it. Yeah. And he was from a nice, rich family, volunteering his time and being a fun uncle to his nephews. Right? I'm sure oh, he was no. really fun. Yeah. And then let's go to Gregory Woodward Green. He was born in 1950. He grew up with his parents and three siblings, an older sister and a brother, and a younger brother. Sorry. I, I didn't. Yeah. Sorry. Um, his father worked at the factory line at GM. His mom mm-hmm. passed when he was 16 years old. And he started getting into petty crimes, which included burglary, burglary, smoking, selling pot, and having a police radio equipment in his car. Hmm. By 19, Green left for California. Within days, he was arrested on lead charges. Green was described as having movie star good looks, dark hair, and dark eyes, chiseled cheekbones, and a square jawline. I could see how he could be successful in movies, but knowing... Things about him. He's creepy and gross. Yeah, Yeah. my next two points are going to get worse. Um, After the weed charges, he stayed out of trouble for five years working as the night shift janitor at Kmart. And during the day, you know, he was being great coaching a baseball team. Oh, yeah. um, Where he molested multiple boys on the team repeatedly. Sure. Uh, By 1974, he was arrested on 45 counts of child molestation, kidnapping, and false imprisonment of young boys. Uh, do you want to guess how long he was sent away? Probation? Two years for probation? Worse. Um, he spent six months in county jail, and then six months in an institution. Um, at that time, he admitted to molesting more than 200 kids in California between the early and mid-70s. For his parole. He admitted to it, so it wasn't even like, oh, we need to prove he did it. No, he admitted. Okay. Um, although it also sounds like might be one of those things where they brag and exaggerate. Well, still, I feel like somebody admits to it. You're like, okay, we have reason to never let you out into public again. Yeah, also to, also, against my point, um, I don't know why you would ever exaggerate that number in prison. Yeah, if, that's, yeah, that's, that's not a place where you want yeah. to. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, after that year, um, for his parole, he was able to work out a way that he could serve his parole back in Michigan under the supervision of his father. Oh, good. Um, okay. Green returned to Detroit on February 11th, 1976. February 11th, 1976? Uh-huh. What was, was, what was the day that Mark was taken? February 15th, 1976. I can't... What? That's going to come back. Just just wait for that. Um, which is why I popped. What is the logic behind... This person has admitted to molesting children... We're going to send him to his dad. I would like to note, though, that I was waiting for one of them to be predatory towards girls. And it sounds like both of them are predatory towards boys. Well, hold. Okay, Okay, never mind. Thank you. So, this next part is called Molesters Meet, so it's really cute. Was that like a website? Molestersmeet.com? Pretty sure it was. Oh, God. Like farmers? That's how all those pedophiles knew each other in the 70s. They had a website mm-hmm. in the 70s. Melissa's dating site. Um, so Green claims him and Bush met at a bar in Oakland County. They formed a partnership in January 1977. So what's that conversation How does that like? come up? I don't know. Like, hey, how what they... age group do you, like, find attractive? Yeah. I, I mean, it's just, like, how, like, two, like, psychopaths find each other and then meet up like i don't i don't understand how that partnership seem to find each other i feel like and i think that's unfair with the internet now it's easier because you can just go to a specific site and know that those people are at that site for a reason yeah Yeah. but in a bar how do you bring up the fact that you enjoy molesting children we did talk about how it seemed very prevalent at the time because of yeah all the shit going on there were probably codes and and like different signs and stuff Uh, i imagine it was a whole you walk in and squawk like a hawk and they're like First of all, hawk squawking is fun. Um, <laughs> second of all, yeah, I figure it's going to be that obnoxiously. 
And people are like, what's wrong with that person? Oh, don't worry about him. He's meeting up with Johnny over there. He squawked like a hawk, too. We leave him alone. <laughs> They're both fucking weird. They're a little touched. Anyway. Thank you. So, they met. Um, They formed a partnership. Jump forward to January 1977. They were arrested on multiple first-degree criminal sexual conduct charges brought by a 13-year-old. This is when he, Bush, got that lawyer and that all started okay. to And we're going to call that 13-year-old Smith. Okay. Because I don't really want to say his name. Okay. He doesn't come up again. Mm. He's a victim. It's not relevant. He's no. a victim here and I don't want to just throw him out. He's still, I think he's, I think he's still alive. Smith doesn't come back into the investigation. Yeah, I don't want to put his name out there. Smith said he was raped multiple times by both men. Smith met Chris through his friend and Bush's nephew. He said Green was the more violent one, and he forcibly raped him despite tears and pleads. Green then choked him until he passed out. Smith identified four vehicles driven by the two. And just wait for the last one. A 74 Chevy van, a 70 gray Impala, a 60 style dark blue Tomek, and a 74 blue Chevy Vega hatchback with a double hockey stick on the side. Which, hold on. No, I remember. No, they're two different cars, but this is comparing them. Yeah, they look the same. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't find one with the hockey stick on the side for the Vega, but. But if you saw that in a parking lot at night and you. Mm-hmm. Or just an ordinary person who didn't know every single vehicle. Yeah, when he I was guess. saying, like, for example, when he was, like, a 70-whatever and 76-whatever, I'd be like, I don't know how to tell a car. I'm always impressed when people are give witness statements and can give the car. Yeah. There's, like, three cars that I can identify when I see them. I know some logos. I still get my car Yeah, I'm, I might be able to be like, oh. I see, like, a Nissan, and I'm like, could be mine. <laughs> I might be able to be like, oh, yeah, it was a Ford. And I know that because I saw Ford on it. Yeah. I but, like, like, there are, like, some cars that you can identify easily, like a Bug yeah. or a yeah. PT yeah. Cruiser. Anyway. Um, but they did it. It was them. <laughs> I would like to learn. There. I give up. It was them. Okay. The second boy that pressed charges during this event, too, was named James Vincent Grundles. He, unfortunately does some bad stuff so he's his name is in this james lived on the same street as bush is it one of those scenarios where like he becomes somebody who's molested is more likely to be amongst others yeah 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 i think i can't remember right i think so i know that you said that they were arrested in january do you know what day it was or just it was in january Mm -hmm. They seem to be getting out right away, though, because there's no rules anywhere. I was also thinking that, I don't remember her name, but the one who went missing in January, she was gone for like 20 days, right? It was Mark, Jill, Christine, and um, Timmy. She was gone for a long time. She was gone for like 19 days. I wonder if she was gone. Okay, so here's, Jill was not sexually assaulted. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that's why they immediately grabbed somebody else. Maybe. They and why them. they hold on to her so long. Maybe. Yeah. Tell us more. So, Grundle said that Bush molested him several times, beginning from January 30th, 1976, when Bush brought Grundles and his younger brother and then Bush's nephews to the family cottage on S Lake. E-S-S? I would say, yes. Yeah. Um, James was 14, an 8th grader, and smoked weed with Bush before he forced him into oral sex. Vince also told him how they went dirt biking in Midland County and another Bush family home in May 1970, where he was shown explicit movies and attempted to be raped. He got away in that scenario, I believe. The S.S. Their lake house was Chris's private getaway. His parents rarely made the three-and-a-half-hour drive, and the cottage was small, with three bedrooms, flat-roofed, and was right on the lake in walking distance. Mm. John, who was Bush's eldest brother, he had two kids that were uh, repeatedly molested by Chris and Green. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. So, in the... January 1977, when the men were arrested, Green immediately pinned Mark's murder on Bush. 
During After they were arrested, Green's Chevy van was searched. They found two Polaroid pictures of a young boy and two pairs of young girls' underwear. Which, pretty sure both of the girls had their underwear. Or at least... Didn't I can't they, remember. I remember they checked one of their underwear. Mm-hmm. So they had mm-hmm. it. Um, but who's to say it's not some other poor girl, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, Green claimed he didn't get back to Detroit until February 14th. But police records show that he arrived February 11th, four days before Mark was abducted. When Bush was arrested, he said he he had asked if he could stop home for clothes, and the officer allowed that in exchange to search the home. Oh. So, yeah. I read that and was like, really? In the home, they found two shotguns, a 16 and a 20, one pound of weed, and a suitcase with ropes inside and some black pieces of plastic. In the basement, there was another suitcase full of child porn, magazines and films, including home movies of two children together in a tent and wooded area. I think it was a really dumbass move to be like, yeah, you can search my house. I just really need to change my clothes. Oh, sure. I don't... I'm I'm seeing the writing on the wall, and I'm saying maybe he just didn't care at this point because he had plans. Okay. I forgot to give us that. Bush claimed while they were talking to him that he engaged in sex with boys because he was raped in boarding school, which the next sentence I have is not a reason. It's yeah, not, not the reason to do it. Not a good excuse. It's, there's no reason to do it. Their no uses are like hot dogs and trench coats. Yeah. Um, he said... Settle down. He claimed he had just flown back from England with his parents on February 14th, the same day, day Green gave. So it couldn't have been him that took Mark... Again, Mark went missing on February 15th, but one newspaper at the time had reportedly printed February 13th as his abduction date, Mm. so it made sense that if they were claiming not to be involved, both men gave it, like, the day after. But if they were involved, they would know when they took him. I think they were thinking about, like, the day that the police thought it was involved or something. Yeah. If they were like, oh, the police thinks he won't miss yeah. on the 13th, then I just need to have myself covered on the 13th. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Green and Bush were both polygraphed about Mark's case, and the examiner believed that they had been telling the truth. This caused them to be considered cleared, so if any future tips came up connecting them to the case, their tip sheets would be read cleared by polygraph. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah. Oh, this is the part I have. So, Michigan State was the first law enforcement agency. Michigan State Police was the first law enforcement agency in the country to establish a state uh, police polygraph unit in 1935. That's why this they were so definitive on polygraphs and thinking that they were like... They defended it. Yeah. Further charges. Green was given a life sentence and was sent to Jackson State Prison on June 17, 1977. Good. In 1995, he died of a heart attack at 45. Oh, no. There are conflicting reports of whether he was out on bond until he was sentenced or if he was in jail until his sentencing. I hope he was in jail. Yeah, me too. Bush's father hired Burgess, who was the lawyer, in March 1977 to represent Chris. She arranged to have his bail posted at each county where the, there were charges and making his original $75,000 bond reduced to $1,000. His charges were either reduced or dropped, and Burgess convinced four separate judges to probation and psychiatric treatment. Do you remember when the police were like, oh, the family's handled it? Mm -hmm. He's like, yeah. Yeah. Jay and Burgess took Bush to Wasser for polygraph on the Smith case shortly after being hired, I guess, to get, like, information about it and make sure. And that case, like, this whole, like, Smith case and Grundle's case, uh, Grundle's case started in January 1977. Again, because he got out on nothing and didn't have to worry about him, Tim was taken in March. Mm-hmm. During a 2008 interview, James Green, who was Greg's brother, said he found a hidden room in Gre- that Greg built in the attic of his father's house after he was arrested. The room had a small latched door, and Greg had installed panel- paneling and carpeting. So well, It's a good thing he was released into his dad's custody, because it seems like his dad's on top of things. Yeah, you know. November 20th, 1978, at the age of 22, Chris Bush was found dead in his bed. Time out. Yes. Sorry, it's just in... Happy birthday. 
about Happy birthday! It's my birthday! birthday. Alright, go ahead. Okay. So Chris was found dead in his bed. Um, murder, you say? Ha ha ha. I hope he killed himself. Well, we'll see. Chris had been living at his parents' house at this time. The family maid grew concerned when she couldn't open the door. Because, of course, they had a maid because they're rich as folk. And Charles, Chris's brother, got a call from the maid when she got concerned. So him and officers went upstairs to his room. They found Chris lying in bed with a twenty-two caliber rifle by his side, pointed at his face with a bullet hole in his forehead. His parents were in Europe visiting their other son, and Chris and his wife reported having no indication... Oh, sorry. Charles and his wife reported having no indication that Chris was depressed or suicidal. What what month? I'm sorry. This was in November 1978. Okay. Was Charles the one whose kids Chris molested? Yes. Did they Did know, that? know that? I don't time? think so. Okay. Like, they'd be very cavalier about this. Yeah. Okay. It seems It like, came up later. I mean, okay. if I wouldn't let the person who molested my children stay in my house. Yeah. And then be, like, worried when the maid couldn't get in their room. Yeah, I'd be like, oh, no. Well, so, Charles didn't live. It wasn't Charles' house. It was the parents' house mm-hmm. that Chris was staying in. I still would yeah. not care. The parents were right. away, so when the maid got concerned, she called Charles, who went with yeah. officers. And I, yeah, okay. So, before I show you some pic, Well, actually, you know, let me show you some pictures first. Um, because this scene isn't exactly... Um, what you'd expect. Yeah, it's weird. So, first off, this is how he was found. That was a really cute way. Thank you. So, before I... How did he get the trigger? Yeah. Before I go into it... Have I gone behind him? No, No, he's facing. It's like he's spooning in bed. It's in the picture on the right. That's his face, and he's facing oh, that oh, way. Oh. See his arm there? Yeah, yeah. His arm there, I thought was his back. Yeah, okay. I love his cheetah print bed. And yeah. his dog bed sheets. Oh, this guy. Yeah. Fucking weird. Uh, so, Sucks. not what you would assume of someone that shot themselves in the head. Mm. Yeah. You would expect something to be, well... More mess, I would expect. Well, no, I'm th- I'm thinking logistically. How did he pull yeah, the trigger? Yeah, that too. That arm, maybe he was leaning over, pulled it, and then just from the shot, he flew back a little bit. I don't know. If he wasn't bundled up under the covers, I would say maybe like a toe. Well, that's a thing. But he's his legs are tucked in there. My thing was, why is he tucked in? It looks like he's going to bed with it. Mm-hmm. Or someone shot him while he was sleeping. So, other things they found was pinned up sketch depicting a young boy bearing a striking resemblance to Mark. The boy was wearing his zipped up fur-lined hooded jacket, identical to what Mark was last seen in. And the boy appears to be screaming with eyes clenched, possibly in pain. So it was a sketch? Yeah, which I will show you the picture in a second. Oh. Um, there's no evidence of blood spatter on the wall. He was tucked into bed. In the closet, there were four lengths of ropes looped in the middle of the floor, which seemed planted intentionally, um, which the victims all showed signs of being bound. A single 12-gauge shotgun shell placed upright on top of the desk in the bedroom, consistent with Jill Robinson's murder weapon. It sounds like... A partner decided they're going to get somebody else to take the fall. Yeah, like the one that keeps blaming him. Mm-hmm. Well, at this point... Green was in prison. Yeah. So, this is what they found. So, that's his Mark's missing sketch. That's the photo that was in the room. And that's his closet. Which another part of, like, someone that analyzed this was, like, you can clearly see that, like, the closet's, like, pretty clean. Mm -hmm. So it's weird that someone would just throw ropes in the middle of the floor. Yeah. I was thinking that they wanted it to make it seem like that's where he was held captive. Maybe. But if everything else is, like, so clean and he's so meticulous about, like, keeping the body clean and, like, doing the nails and washing everything, like, why would he, why would you think, like, wouldn't you think he would tidy up the ropes just as clean? It seems like someone is setting the scene. But my other thing that I thought of, was there blood on the bed? 
Um, it looks like there was blood on the sheets in that picture. Yeah, so like, if some, if he, if we're meant to believe that he was like spooning the gun and shot himself, mm-hmm. there'd be blood on the wall. Yeah, but if someone was standing over him, yep, mm-hmm. and shot him downward, yeah, the blood would be all on the pillow. Mm-hmm. So, and here's the other fun thing. So, as we go deeper into this, the suicide was never investigated as anything other than a suicide. Detective Williams couldn't even go back over the suicide because the evidence was destroyed. The drawing, the ropes, the shotgun shell. The evidence was also returned to Harold Bush in December of 1978. I mean, I honestly, I'd be like, I don't care what happened to him. He's dead. Who gives shit? Okay. Um, The autopsy ruled that Bush died the same day, November 20th, 1978, of a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. Other than noting his blood alcohol level, which was 0.41%, more than four yeah. times the legal limit no, for driving, over. there was no indication of a full autopsy that was a full autopsy that was ever full autopsy. Shut up. Um, I don't like it. Side note: In 1971, like a clerk from the medical examiner's office testified that the doctor who was working in that office was supposed to perform an autopsy on Bush, but did not perform autopsies in 919 out of 1,600 cases. Wow, so over half. Mm-hmm. So what, he had he signed just... the death certificates for. He was just signing off on them and never performed them. Um, Bush's remains were then cremated two days after he was found, and interestingly enough, just four weeks after Bush died, the Oakland County Child Murders Task Force disbanded, and that's when they came out and said, mm. it's taken it's care of. Taken care. Yeah. Um, one theory stemming from this is that Lake Bush was a part of a nationwide multi-million dollar child porn ring, and it could explain Bush's questionable suicide scene, suicide scene could explain why children were held for days mm. uh, before they were killed. Um and yeah that makes a lot of sense side note there was a nationwide ring operating on a small <laughs> island in michigan owned by the ma- a man named sheldon and if um they were concerned that he was not going to be able to stand up under the pressure that makes a lot of sense actually keeping yeah. them for that long another theory is that his dad was paying off everyone in a key position to keep his pedophile son from being connected to the murders and to protect the family name after, that sounds right to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. After uh, Gundles filed charges when he was young, he uh, he was the other boy besides Smith that brought charges against them. He reported that Chris's mom had tried to bribe him into dropping the charges. They were obviously like not above of helping Chris out of his yes. Yeah. So in 2012, the Cold Case uh, Investigative Society of University of Western Ontario, Go Canada, which is a student-run organization that aid in solving of domestic and international cold murder cases, investigated the suicide. Um, They said that it is possible the caliber of the weapon would not cause an exit wound, so there would not be significant blood spatter, but the autopsy was never confirmed details like this, and the report never stated if the bullet was ever recovered from the skull. The shot between the eyes is uncommon in cases of suicide. It is an awkward position to achieve a self-inflicted wound between the eyes with a long-barreled firearm, but may result in, like, a large injury. All the doors and windows were locked from the inside except the door from the garage, which was standing open. The nature of the scene as a symbolic confession of involvement in the murders, the place of the evidence linking Bush to the Oakland County uh, child case, appears staged and forced. So that's what they said about, like, analyzing the scene. So pretty much kind of, like, everything that we've said and noticed, too. In, 20, in 2008, they got DNA from Charles, Corson's brother, mm. who was the only remaining brother or family member. Detective Williams also went back to their old family home and tried power vacuuming, like, trace particles in the air ducts and, like, yeah. baseboards. But that's a long shot. Especially like, because, yeah. Especially because the bushes the, had two dogs. So, like, could one of them have been the hairs on the kids? Wow. A lot of the original evidence had been lost in no less than three floods in evidence storage rooms. But they were able to find the slides containing the animal hairs from Jill's jacket, and they believe the animal hairs were white dog hairs, and there was a white hair found on three out of four of the victims. They also found a slide containing the hair recovered from Tim's groin area, and another slide containing a hair human hair fragment recovered from Christine's mouth. Unfortunately, the 
animal hairs did not match any of the hairs found on the victim's clothing from like the family dogs i guess or like anything that they found from the house detective williams also arranged for three separate polygraph examiners to review bush and green's original polygraphs and after reviewing the charge individually they all came back with the same conclusions that both subjects showed deception each examiner said that if they had tested them they both would have failed so they detective williams followed up with smith and like had asked more questions about bush and green and it was revealed that they would often use him to lure kids over to the car 14 smith had said bush forced him to go down on a young boy in the woods he believed that was tim king he recognized him right away when williams showed him a picture of tim so now we're going to go into some dna so in 2009, the FBI DNA lab report that Grundles was a positive mitochondrial DNA match linking him to Christine's murder. Mitochondrial DNA is not definitive as nuclear DNA is. It's only passed from mother to child. Grundles wouldn't talk about this match, uh, but was watched closely. During a phone conversation with his sister, she was asking him about the match and how his DNA had gotten on her. And he responded, I don't know nothing about it. I wasn't there when it happened. Kind of weird. Hmm. Polygraphed in July 2009, he failed the exam. It looked very suspicious when he failed the exam, the DNA being matched, and his connection to Bush and Green. But Grundles could not be held on those theories. Hmm. I'm sorry, I want to go back. I don't think Grundles turned into a pedophile. I think he just really, he's had a very hard life since this. I think he was... Like molested, molested, and then used. Yeah, by them. Yeah, they also found that at Christine's body dump site, because of the snow and the snowbank, the vehicle left um, imprints in it. Like when they backed up, they were able to see the frame and like the exhaust pipe and everything. Oh, and they had discovered that the most probable vehicles were a Chev- Chevrolet Chevelle, a Potomac Temptus, a GTO, an Ode's Oldmobile F eighty five. About this and a Buick Skylark based on like the frame and the tank and the tire tread and exhaust. Chris did have a Potomac listed on his cars. Mm. So, um, unfortunately, there were, were other pedophiles that they had to look into. I'm gonna just like gloss through them real quick. There was an Arch Edward Sloan, he was a pedophile serving two life sentences for first degree criminal conduct. Convicted and sentenced in Wayne County in 1985 for raping a 10-year-old son of a co-worker. They had eyes on him in 76, and he was brought in for questioning for Mark's murder. Sloan was 35 at the time. He was an auto mechanic and towing tow truck driver living with his parents in Southfield. Sloan had been violating young boys since he was 13. He had his car searched, and there was three human hairs found that had the same mitochondrial DNA sequence as one of the hair as the hair found in Tim's groin area. And one found on Mark's clothing. But the hair didn't belong to Sloan, and he wasn't talking. In 2005, Sloan was offered a deal to adjust his life sentence, but he still refused to give any information. Mm -hmm. Next one is John Crosby. He knew the Stibbings family, uh, and he was born with significant intellectual disabilities. Mm -hmm. His parents were very protective over him, and since he could be easily influenced and exploited. They had him put under surveillance when Mark went missing, and they had observed him unpacking his car and pulling out a large rectangular cooler. A detective noticed there was a reddish blonde, like bit of hair, in the end of the cooler, and that was consistent with the hair type of Mark. Mm-hmm. September 1976, he was arrested for molesting a 13-year-old in a Dairy Queen line. He rubbed up on her. Oh my God! Yeah, and he- Dairy Queen. Um, the next one would be Ronald Loyal Bailey. He was a notorious pedophile who escalated to murder. In Detroit in 1950. Spelled exactly like your name. Yeah, I know. Uh, you could have asked. I would have told you. I know. I was just. She needed to see it for herself. I wanted to see. He was born in Detroit in 1959. At 14, he kidnapped a 15-year-old boy at knife point and sexually assaulted him. Sure. Why not? The next year, he pulled a knife on a 12-year-old. And then at 16, he also strangled a 10-year-old boy. Cool. In 1975, he spent two years undergoing 
psychiatric treatment at Northville Regional Psychiatric. Psychiatric. There it is. <laughs> Hospital. Are you okay? Some <laughs> words. Someone needs to hit reset on her. Uh, when he so he spent time there when he was charged with sexual assault. The hospital alone was a terrible place, ran by this awful doctor who would drug and sexually abuse his patients. Because why not? I mean, sure, if they're doing it, you might as well too. Um, in August 1985, Bailey, uh, not you, no, not me, abducted a boy named Sean Moore and. He was missing for two weeks when he left his home for a root beer at a convenience store. Um, His nude body was found near Bailey's fishing cabin. Bailey was arrested in Florida where he fled after killing Sean. While awaiting trial, he confessed to strangling a 14-year-old after luring him away from a mall. He was sentenced to two life sentences without without parole and his... Psychiatric. There you go. Uh, medical records eliminated him as a suspect for the Oakland County uh, child case, but he could come and go as he pleased from the hospital in exchange for sexual favors with the doctor. So, I was just saying if he was actually there. He was excluded by DNA. Another thing that I found is a theory was could this have been John Mangasey? Oh. I hate that theory. He didn't need to travel. Right. Plus, he didn't do... He didn't do girls. Yeah. He also didn't do them this young. Mm-hmm. I don't like that you're saying do them. I'm sorry. He didn't... Target. Target them this young. He also had his own business and was very he... well equipped getting his own Yeah, targets. it wasn't like he was... Hurting. No, yeah. I mean, hurting for victims. Yeah. He had plenty. I think people just, I think that part of the reason that we do that, like, whether we know it or not, try to, like, assign them to, like, known killers and stuff, is it's just, like, hard to it's, it's imagine that there's so many. Digest. There's a and couple you, awful ones. Yeah, like, how people are like, oh, well, maybe H.H. Holmes is Jack the Ripper. It's it's better to, I think it's, like, a defense mechanism for mm-hmm. humanity to be like, there's not... Everyone isn't just like terrible. Yeah. There's just like there's just a couple who are doing all the bad things. Who are just sucking, and they're all instead over the of place. like there's a whole pedophile ring, and they're all out there doing her. Or that everyone things. sucks. Yeah. yeah. Don't trust anyone. So, by the end of 2018, only three people involved uh, were still living. All three harbored knowledge that could solve the case, and all three were dead set on their silence. This was Lamborghini, Sloan, and Grundles. I think it's a little bit scary that the three of them still wouldn't talk. Yeah. So, and there are another, like, to rounding it off, they're connected with Sloan failed a polygraph when asked I about him. And if, still maintain that he didn't know whose hair was in his car. wonder if Bush's murder or suicide would, sent a message. Mm-hmm. To the community. Grundles failed a polygraph about Christine, and his hair was found on her sweater. He claimed to not remember anything from drug use, and also has failed to report to his parole officer. Parole officer, and as of June 2022, he's been on the run. Are you okay? Falling all over the place. Lamborghini failed a polygraph on all four murders, but has also refused to cooperate. And now, over 13 years into his sentence, and an elderly man, no one suspects him of changing his mind and talking. Mm. Um, recently... Maybe like a deathbed confession? Hopefully. Hopefully he dies soon. Um, recently, a biological lab was able to retest the vaginal swab taken from Christine, and they were able to identify a partial Y STR DNA profile. This is passed through fathers and is a marker for the male Y chromosome. It tracks uh, parental lineage of all male descendants. The swab is not 100% a profile, but is enough markers to exclude or not exclude people. More than 60 DNA samples of all suspects have been swabbed, and by the time the book was published, which I think it was like recently, most of the subject sub suspects yeah i've been talking a lot yeah Um, had been eliminated 
They are hopeful that scientific advances will allow for comparison using the YSTR DNA from Christine and the mitochondrial DNA from the hairs found in Sloan's car and on Mark's, Mark and uh, Tim's bodies, just like how the Golden, Golden State Killer was found. Yeah, I'd like that too. Yeah. Detective Williams reviewed over the case... Uh, review over the case forced him to conclude that there indeed had been some abuse of power in the Bush investigation. They must have realized that his suicide, that he was probably the killer, and had cover up their suspicions rather than expose the fact that they had him in custody and let him go. There was also circumstantial evidence that GM was aware of their chief financial officer's problems with his son. And maybe GM has something to do with it if we're going to go through all those conspiracy theories. It's um, a theory. It's a conspiracy yeah. theory. Detective Williams. GM coming after us. <laughs> Detective Williams has since retired, but has spent 13 years on this case in 2019. He sounded. He sounds like a good guy. He is. He uncovered a lot of information and pointed out oversights. Because of him, I think we're going to have the killer named in the coming years with the DNA. Good. Um, or a deathbed confession, unfortunately. Uh, I prefer DNA. I don't want them to help us at all. I want them to find out before, while the families are still, like... I want them, those involved, to think that they're going to kind of skate on by without having to... Without being caught for these. Yeah. And then I want them to be like, well, fuck. They figured Um, it out. Yeah. Yeah. So... And I want them to be, like, shitting bricks every day because they're worried that they're going to be caught... I just don't like them. No. I don't know why. Um, I want to take the last little bit of this episode and just give updates on each of the families. Okay. Um, so, Ruth uh, Stibbings, March Mo- Mark's, Mark's mom, mom, became uh, despondent yeah. and uh, too distressed to work after Mark passed. She ended up on welfare, and her life was never the same. She told reporters that every time she heard about a child being murdered, it brought her right back to the day Mark was found. Ruth died in 1998. Her son, Mike, will be turning uh, 36, or sorry, 63 this year. I was going to say 36. Wow. He's doing great. No, he's not. Carol Robinson, Jill's mom, said, it's the small things that get to you. The hardest thing is when someone asks how many children I have, and I automatically say three. I can't believe it's now only two. It took no, her years. She still has a third. She has all of them. Yeah. It took her years, but she's learned to live with what life has handed to her. Dwelling on the tragedy would have destroyed her. She later on said, I have always hoped that one day I will know what happened and I have let go of the negative. I don't have any anger in my heart. I don't blame anyone or want anyone to suffer. She has strived to correct in the narrative that Jill did not run away. She, She said that she was smart, kind, a sweet little girl. She enjoyed reading, watching TV with her sisters, going to Girl Scouts, spending time with her cousins, and with her dad on Wednesdays and the weekends. Debbie Jarvis, Christine's mom, removed herself from the investigation. Her life was never the same. She described it as living hell, a living hell. She takes great comfort in her belief that the reason Christine was held on so long was because she was so delightful. She said that she was really... she really was that enjoyable. She was a good baby, a good toddler, and a pleasant child. Barry, Tim's dad, did his best returning to work after Tim's funeral. Marion found it hard to cope. Tim's siblings suffered psychological wounds over the years. The subject turned into a forbidden subject that no one talked about. Kathy, Tim's sister, became an attorney, got married and had children in Idaho. Mark became a businessman in Texas, and Chris became an editor and a tech writer in Michigan. The Kings have always stayed the most involved in the case. Kathy keeps up a blog about the investigation, and Barry has consistently pushed for more information and more investigating when the case was reopened. Barry resides in the same house. Um, There's a large display of photos of Tim, along with a painting of him in his hockey uniform. Marion passed away in 2004 from COPD. When she was buried, Tim's remain remains was moved to lay beside his mom forever oh good that makes me good yeah i'm happy well that was a bummer i'm sorry <laughs> um really bringing the mood down i'm so sorry but hopefully we'll have answers in a couple of years yeah i'm, I'm really hoping families will know i just think it would suck so much 
for them to finally find out and find out that the person has been dead for years. Yeah. You know? But, I don't know, one way or another, they're going to... I feel confident they're going to put that together with all of the things. I mean, they have, have, they don't have, like, complete DNA, but they have so many, like, different, like, pieces of it that we've got to find it. And it sounds like, um, everyone who could possibly be involved has 800, no, I was going to say 800 family members. Oh. Mm -hmm. So there's plenty of DNA. Yeah. To try and figure it out, so. It's not like they've died and they're like, well, their body is cremated and now we have nothing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Everybody has a, like, yeah, Bush has like brothers, and nephews, nephews and parents, yeah. and the Gregory, whoever, Green. Jubble, Jubble G. It's Gregory Green, Jubble mm. G. Jubble, Double G. G. There you go. You and Bailey. Shut up. Has, um. We're the ones that did the most talking today. Yeah, it's you've done your, shit today. It's not your birthday. I don't know. Anyway, he's got siblings as well. Yeah. Plus, well, wouldn't their DNA be on record from being in jail? Should be. Good. Good, good, good. Yeah. They're going to find it. And um, if these people, I don't know, I like to imagine that they're like, well, they're definitely in hell because they've already admitted to attacking people. But I hope once this comes out, the devil goes up and says, hey, we just found out that you did a lot more than you you said. I, I, like check the, in. I like that the devil is relying on law it's, enforcement. It's the messenger. He's the manager of the hotel. He's, he's relying on confessions. So yeah. He's doing He's like, he I'm is. not actually sure when about you. When you check you, in, no you have to write down everything you've done, and then he decides what floor you're on. When you check into hell, yes. he's relying on confessions. And so then he goes in, and he knocks on their door, and he's like, hey, I just found out this is what you've done. You know, oh. or, I'm sorry. We're gonna have to. I'm sorry. We're gonna have to bump you. You're gonna have to go even lower. Look, this sounds so like when Dwight's like, I'm gonna yeah. be your boss. Soon. He's running a BB. Yeah, he's running a BNB. The devil. So in your wildest fantasy, you're running a BNB with the devil. And how much is getting eighty thousand a year? Or something <laughs> <laughs> something stupid. Not even eighty thousand. I don't even know. Anyway. Um, everyone get a drink or see some videos about happy puppies. Sorry about the bummer. <laughs> so, in your wildest fantasy, you are in hell, and you are co-running a bed and breakfast with the devil. But I haven't told you myself. <laughs> yes, 80000 a year! <laughs> Alrighty. I'm glad we ended on a funny note. Yeah, I'll to. The office. <sighs> Alright. See you next time. Bye, everybody. Happy birthday, Drew. Okay, calm down. Well, that was sinister. And we were sarcastic. And we hope you keep listening.